185milesouth.com. Smash that Patreon button. What's up, everyone? It's going down on May 1st in Oxnard, California. Terror, outburst, retaliate, dead heat at the OPAC. You got to handle business. Go to sticktight.la for tickets. And uh, that's that, May 1st. I'll see you all there. Come say hi. Hundred and eighty five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we are doing an episode dedicated to the LP Hello Bastards by the band Lifetime. And I have Anthony Papalardo here to speak on it before we go over to Dan Yeeman for an interview. Uh, Pops, what is the significance of this album, Hello Bastards, by Lifetime? So I think to dig back a little further, what was interesting is that Lifetime came out of a crop of bands that were happening sort of as, you know, the 80s part of of, of hardcore's run was, was over, you know, like 90, 91, you know, like Resurrection, like all these bands on New Age, Resurrection. Lifetime, Mouthpiece, um, Strife, Unbroken. Like, bands are starting all around the same time, relatively, and uh, exploring different presentations and, and ideas, right? And in the Northeast, Lifetime got really popular on that 7-inch quickly, and I think people were excited for the LP. And I think out of all those bands, they were kind of the most... I don't want to say I don't want to say experimental, but they were like pushing it. Like they had all of the um, the elements of like what they're calling new school hardcore. You know, <laughs> whether it was like the the melody, the guitar style, the tempo style. And when Background came out, they leveled up again. You know, they got bigger, and their shows were super well attended. But then Tinnitus came out, and it was a shift in the sound in a way that I think. It, to me, everyone just responded really positively to it. And so the album coming out, like Hello Bastards, the second LP coming out, there was a lot of anticipation and it was kind of unexpected because in a way they did two things at once. Like they definitely leaned into the melody, but it also was more hardcore in a traditional sense than the earlier stuff. So it's kind of like, it kind of catered to even to me, like more people. And one thing I noticed when the album came out is that a lot of folks that I hung out with, that were older who were kind of around for the earlier part of the eighties. They had kind of not, I don't want to say soured on hardcore, but just weren't listening to it as regularly. And because they were into bands that were on Jade tree and they were also into like indie rock bands, um, you know, stuff with a little more melody, like indie rock that was influenced by punk. They really liked this punk band that was influenced by indie rock. And so I remember taking, I was in college at the time and driving down to the New Bedford Fest that Lifetime, I think, headlined one of the days. And there's the videos on YouTube, you can find it. It gets stopped because someone from Connecticut 
dove off the balcony and someone got seriously injured. It was a really terrible thing to happen at a show. But, um, but I drove down with all these people from my college that were older that, you know, maybe two years prior would have never gone to a hardcore show. And now they're driving an hour and a half to go see this band that they're excited about. And I think the other thing contextually is that no one was blending like very few. I don't want to say no one that's too blanket, but no one like of their stature that was coming out of the straight edge hardcore scene. And I know lifetime wasn't a straight edge band, but just to make it specific was doing this sort of like West coast sounding or, you know, like more West coast sounding style of music and blending it really well. So it was kind of cool. I mean, like in a way it was like a more hardcore version of it's like jawbreaker with mosh parts to be very generic, but then also pulling from like, you know, there's a huge Dag Nasty influence. The song, What She Said, has a lot of similarities to um, the song Godfather by Dag Nasty. Um, so, yeah, I just think it was a, it was kind of a sea change time. And I think it's, we don't even have to say, like, the bands that were influenced by Lifetime, it's very obvious. Like, they weren't, <laughs> there's no hiding it, right? And uh, And I just think it kind of, like, expanded the possibilities, sort of in the way that, like, a couple of years prior when Farside came through, I think they exposed a lot of people who are into more like New York city, hardcore stuff to this poppier sound. And you could see that travel. And I think like Farside's almost like the strange missing link to like what happened on the East coast, just for them touring a couple of times and becoming so popular. So one of the things that's most important about this album is it's kind of like a tentpole album that brings the sound of hardcore in the nineties kind of out of that, darkness of uh the new age record sound yeah i think there's a couple things too i wanted to mention and maybe i think they kind of crystallize on this album but also like leading up like lifetime wasn't afraid to do things that were unconventional and almost like present like things that were considered like feminine and hardcore like how ari dressed dan not wearing shoes um using like flowers like their main image like that long sleeve with the flower or like woodcut art like things that were obviously there before like that's th- those are a lot of tropes for the revolution summer but there was also in the early 90s there was a lot more women and and later non-binary trans people att- attending shows right and lifetime i think was a band that like communicated to a to more of the audience. Right. And then, you know, they were, they had the silence equals death logo on the background LP. And then I think by the time hello bastards comes out, there's even a more diverse group of people there. And it's like, sometimes you need like a band that feels like your band that like, like really represents your idea of hardcore because like everyone has their personal idea of hardcore for some people it's very simple and linear and that's not a bad thing. It's like, I fucking like AF. All I need is AF and I can like 20 bands that sound like AF and I'm going to be happy for the rest of my life. Other people, maybe they're, you know, they got into hardcore seven seconds was their favorite band. Well, now there's no band that really has that energy. And I think lifetime kind of opened that up. And I mean, I saw at least in the shows I was attending, just a lot more diversity. And I feel like lifetime was a band that people really showed up for in that sense. 
All right. Well, here is an interview that Ben Edge and I did with Dan Yeeman. All right, this week on the pod, we have Dan Yeeman of Lifetime. How you doing, Dan? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, also helping out is the mighty Ben Edge. Uh, jumping right in, Dan, in the early uh, days of Lifetime with the first 7-inch and the first LP, how would you describe the sound you were going for and who were the influences? Oh, the sound we were going for, I think that you would probably have gotten different answers from each of us. Um, the most obvious influences on guitar were, um, Verbal Assault and Dag Nasty. Um, I think we were also really influenced by, um, by All and the Descendants. Um, so in terms of stuff we were trying to emulate, um, that was sort of where we were coming from. I don't think we really had articulated or much of a vision for how we were trying to combine like our love of hardcore and our love of like, I guess for lack of a better word, pop punk. Um, yeah, I don't, I think that we, we just had stuff we loved and, and, um, and we're trying to, you know, sort of stumbling through the process of figuring out how to embody that as a band, as, you know, like it, as something new. Um, so, yeah, I think I hope that answers your question. Yeah. I mean, the exercise today is we're, we're focusing on Hello Bastards, but we have to go a little backwards because the sound evolves to get to that point. So yeah. around the time of the Tinnitus 7-inch, the sound does change. What yeah. do you think accounts for that? I think that is when we began, that's when we really figured out how to answer that question of like, how do we, how do we as a band sort of embody the influences that we came to the table with in a way that sounds cohesive and not like a bunch of parts that are cool strung together. I remember. Um, and then the, the other big piece there is um, our new lineup. Uh, so Pete had joined the band after background um, and just sort of as a, as a player and as an old friend, like he was the guy I went to shows with before I was in a band. Um, we come from the same town and he's a, he's like a strikingly good player technically. Um, and so that addition and then, and that was a thrill for me being in a band with the guy that I had gone to some of my earliest shows with. Um, and then Dave joined the band on bass and you can, you know, that you can hear some parts on, on the tinnitus record where he's singing backups, which was like a new thing. Um, that the, the idea of like a, like a vocal harmony was a thing that was possible. Um, and then part of it is just like getting away from labels and doing a record by ourselves really helped us take greater ownership of like what and what we were as a band and what our sound was, I think. Well, it was Hartsfield tell I'm sorry. Go ahead. You said getting away from the label. And I was just wondering, was you were on New Age before that? Was Hartsfield actually like recommending like 
how you should sound? Oh, no, no, no. That's not what I meant to imply oh, okay. at all. Like Mike is Mike. Uh, I, in some ways I owe everything like musically to Mike. Cause he was the first person. Um, to really take it, like hear us and, and hear something in us that was going to be like worth paying attention to. Um, no, he was very, I mean, just like, you know, just like any good independent label person, he was entirely hands off. But I think there's something that shifts when you just take, when you decide to do a record yourself, you're just taking a different kind of ownership of the whole thing. Um, right. So there's something different psychologically, I think, about being like, oh, we're going to put this record out ourselves. The the lyrical themes change a little bit, too, on the record. Like you put in a little more song or a little more humor in songs like mm-hmm. Irony is for Suckers. Yeah. Um, what's the influence there? Is there any sort of jawbreaker influence, do you think? Oh, God, yeah. There's tons of jawbreaker influence. Um, I think that. At that point, I would have to say, like, we're kind of shooting for not to, and I don't want to make this sound more deliberate than it was. It's not like we had a conversation about this, but I think we were like shooting for like the intersection of like start today and like jawbreaker. Right. Um, but I also think Ari was really influenced by Elvis Costello's early records, like in terms of vocal delivery. Um, there's a, just in terms of the hooks, but also the percussiveness of the, of the way he spits the syllables out is very like early Elvis Costello and the attractions. Right. And um, this is more on the uh, guitar front, but I remember telling you that the guitar riff that main repeating guitar riff on Rodeo Clown reminds me of the replacements. And you said you were actually going for screeching weasels. So I sort of, in a way, gave you too much credit. But do you think oh, there, there's any replacements influence or, or, or more screeching it wouldn't weasels? Be the first time, it wouldn't be the first time anybody, somebody gave us too much credit. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the replacements album, Let It Be, is a big influence. Um, not consciously at that time because it was not what I was listening to, but a few years earlier I would have had that. I would have had let it be on repeat like for days at a time. So like, like something like, uh, is it, I will dare that opens that record. I, I believe it is. Yes. Yeah. Like something like that was always probably grafted into my unconscious in terms of like, you know, like fusing melody and aggression. Right. And then that record is, that record's aggressive, but it's also like, uh, heartbreakingly exposed and vulnerable. Right. That's kind of like the, the point at which the tipping point for, for that band where they go from being punk to being whatever they were later. Um, yeah. But in like a broader context, you guys are from New Jersey the um, in the early to mid nineties, there's this giant wave of mainly West coast dominated pop punk coming out. Um, but the East coast, there's really not that many bands playing 
not even just pop punk, but just melodic punk, uh, you know, happier sounding punk, n- less aggressive sounding punk. And why do you think there's a lack of bands doing that on the East Coast? And and why the few bands doing it on the East Coast weren't weren't getting that much attention? I mean, the Queers, they're okay. They're a band everyone knows. They're from New Hampshire, and there's some bands in Gainesville doing it. Maybe a sprinkling of bands in in the Northeast. But why do you think there's there's it's so lopsided at that point in time? Um, you know, California's pretty sunny, <laughs> um, and, and also New York hardcore casts a long shadow, right? Right, um, and that's the that's the kind of scene we were from. So it's it's strange that we were so focused on incorporating pop into the music. Yeah, I'm just having curiosity. How do you refer to that type of music, like the the bands that came up on like Epifat or excuse me Epitaph, Fat Record, and so forth? Do you call it like just pop punk? I, I have trouble labeling it that. It seems like it's something different. Um, I think I kind of label it as its own thing, like fat records music. Um, yeah. It's not because it doesn't really strike me as pop punk. And it's also I don't I really um, I'm averse to calling it melodic hardcore. I don't know why. Right. Yeah, um, it's because not, I, I guess I don't I, I don't want to be in the same category as Pennywise. Maybe I don't know. <clears throat> well, we've tried to tap into that before and that is kind of how we draw the line, right? Like you come out of the basement, they kind of, I mean, I guess they're doing backyard party stuff, right? But there, there does seem like a bigger barrier with the bands in that lane. Kind of, I hate to say like rock starry, but kind of in that way, right? Like I can't just get anyone from fat records. Even if I like email the PR person where like every single person in hardcore is like one person away, you know, like, Right. I don't know. It's so much more connected and organic. Anyway, yeah, that wasn't a question. This, <laughs> I, I, think, I think of that. A lot of that music is really more like surf surfer stuff. Yeah. Like totally. Like even this, even the stuff that, that does have like thoughtful content. I think a lot of it just has the vibe of like, aggressive surfer pop pop uh, aggressive surfer like party music hey, you gotta have a totally. soundtrack to shred the gnar dude <laughs> okay um, uh go ahead oh uh, no you go for it zach <laughs> thank you hey dan uh <laughs> how did how did hello bastards get his title uh it's a quote from dave he was coming up the stairs to this apartment um where Dave and Ari and a bunch of our friends, like a bunch of New Brunswick punks lived. Um, it's like a block up the street from the bouncing souls apartment. And, uh, he was, just, you know, we were waiting in the apartment for, for, to go to practice. And he was, I think co- coming from the library running late and he came, and he came up the stairs and we're all like sort of standing there eagerly waiting. And he's like, he just like grunts, hello bastards at us. And it just seemed a fitting title. Do you have any anxiety about that word potentially getting canceled in the future and having that record have to redo it? Um, no, I've never <laughs> thought about it until now. Now I'll have it. Now I'm sure I'm going to lose sleep over it. But <laughs> um, 
So Steve Evitz produces the album, and it seems like from going on to his discogs, he he seems like more of a metal dude before he worked with you. Why did you choose him to produce the record? Uh, because he was the guy at the studio. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he you know, well, we had done, um, we recorded Tinnitus and the first seven inch with him. Right on. So we knew him from that. And he was, I mean, there were two guys that worked at tracks East. Um, one is Eric, the owner. Um, and the other was Steve who had a, you know, a background in aggressive music and had played in like a eighties metal band. Um, and so he, you know, he was, we had a good experience with him. He was easy to work with. And we really liked that studio. And that studio was just like the spot. Like if you lived in South Jersey, it was probably why me where like turning point and mouthpiece recorded. But if you lived in like central or North Jersey, this was like, this was the spot. And I think we were connected to it because Ari had recorded there with enough. Right. Which was uh, a straight edge band for, that he played drums for um, in the late eighties. And they, uh, they recorded their demo there. So we're honing in here on hello bastards. Can you kind of tell us anything you remember about like the recording process for that record? Um, even down to like the mundane of if you can remember like how many days you spent recording it and so forth. Uh, I think two. <laughs> Damn. Like by, by modern standards in terms of like, like bands getting budgets from labels to do a record. It's kind of really funny. Um, I think we need to spend a little extra time mixing because if I recall the first mix, the, the snare kind of got lost in the hi-hat. And I think initially we we're like, Oh shit. You know, like that was my, uh, that was my complaint about a lot of like my, a lot of my favorite late eighties records. Like just people hadn't figured out how to record hardcore or maybe like hardcore bands were recording with people that didn't really know what it was supposed to sound like. But I feel like there was this thing where like, people didn't really know how to record or mix the drums for like fast music. And so a lot of times these records that I'm like, Oh, these are, these records are incredible. And these songs are incredible. But like the drum sound is like all hi hat. And like, you really need the snare for fast beats, like to make everything sort of feel right. Um, and I, so I, I remember having a really strong reaction to like the, the, the hi hat being overpowering and the snare not being upfront enough. And, you know, there's like, based on our experience up until then, it was like, Oh shit. Well, maybe that was like an issue with how it was record, how it was mic'd and we can't do anything about it. But, um, you know, Steve really knew what he was doing and could, could sort of make it, could sort of bring it into line with what we were, what we were imagining it would sound. And how are you feeling with like how the songs are translating from like how they sound in the room to compared to like how they're starting to sound recording? Are you, are you mostly satisfied? I'm totally satisfied. Yeah. I couldn't have imagined how, um, how, how much I loved how much, how it sounds still. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you were totally comfortable in the studio by this time, right? Cause you've spent enough time in there. Uh, I wouldn't say I was. Okay. <laughs> I am. Um, 
to this day, I love recording, but I hate recording. Like never am I more anxious about my performance than in the studio. And that, and because I'm a person that is like, you know, if I'm anxious about something, it's affecting my behavior. Um, so I, pl- I also never play worse than in the studio. Right. Um, I have a question about um, how it was recorded. Was it done on to, it was done on to tape? Yeah. What do you remember if it was 16 track tape, eight track tape, the, I think it was 16 or 20. Is 24 a thing? 24 is For a two inch thing. Yes. yes. Yeah, it was 24 track. 24 track, 2 inch tape. Track okay. to 2 inch tape, yeah. Right on. Um, which is like, that's, which is like, I mean, I think at that point, that was the, that was the only option. Um, That's what I like to call that state of the art for 1980, which is, the perfect scenario in which to record hardcore music because when did it sound best 1980 just one man's opinion um you're you're, but, you're not wrong um whose idea was it to cover uh the husker du song i believe it was ari's idea and, and do you think husker du had fallen out of favor in the hardcore scene by the mid nineties, I'm thinking about being at hardcore shows in the mid nineties and looking around and I can't imagine any of those kids were Husker Du fans, but did you get that impression as well? Yeah. I mean, we certainly didn't know anybody else that was really, uh, loving Husker Du at that point in time. Right. Um, and this is sort of, I mean, we did this with Frosty when we had him on, uh, for all the chain of strength songs, but do you remember which band members wrote which songs on the album? Were the lyrics all Ari? Lyrics are all Ari. Okay, so the music, let's just go down the list, and if you can remember, that's great. If you can't, I we totally understand. Who wrote the song Danierism? Me. That makes sense. Uh, Radio, Rodeo Clown? Me. Anchor? Uh... Me and we're talking music now, right? Music, music, because we know all the lyrics. Ari, are Ari. Ari did Ari wrote all the lyrics and all the and pretty much all the vocal parts, like the vocal melodies are Ari's. Okay. Um, with with contributions from Dave. Um, so in just in the music, so Anchor uh, was primarily me and a, a bunch Dave. Okay, I'm not calling you. Pete. No, wait, 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 wait. Actually, I'm not calling you was Dave, I think. Okay. Um, Bobby Truck Tricks. Pete. The gym is neutral territory. Dave. I like you okay. Me. Irony is for suckers. Mm, me and Dave, Dave and me. Um, that was one of those uh, one of those moments where we like we really got the got the got into like collaborative synergy, I guess, for lack of a better. I don't know if that sounds pretentious, but I'm I'm like uh, I'm going for precision, not pretension. Yeah, um, yeah. 
I think Dave had the Dave had this the first the first part and the and the the ending anthem part are Dave's and then the fast parts are me and then but it was kind of more of a conversation of like that's great but what about what if we shift to this and do you want to finish the the who wrote what and then I want to tell you about irony or do you want me to tell the story now Oh, you might as well tell the story. Um, we were kind of stuck in that song. Like we had all the parts and we were like, this is good, but um, we don't really know how, like, does this just sound like four parts that we had that we strung together? Like shit, that would, that would be lame and not. And so I think that, um, the cool thing about that, that time is that Dave and Ari lived together and sat around on the couch and like worked on stuff, you know, with an acoustic guitar a lot. And I remember being like, okay, you know, that's got the makings of a good song, but it's not a good song. And then, um, you know, at the end of the first fast part and then it breaks and he sings that line, uh, you tell me everything is changing. Yes. I think that's what he says. Is that what he says? <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. that, that transitioning into the next fast part, that was something they sort of sorted out in the apartment. And they, I was like really worried about it, the song. And I drove back, I had driven back to Philly and I was kind of stressing about it and they figured it out. I don't know how much later, you know, days or hours, I can't remember, but they figured it out and they called me and left it on my voicemail. Like they sang, like they played the guitar and sang the first part and then that break into the second part. And I was just like, I wish I had saved the tape from that, oh, from my man. answering machine. But I was, I just remember getting home and hearing that and I was just elated. Right. They solved the problem. They solved the riddle. Yeah. They solved the problem. They solved the riddle. And like, just this idea that we've, this process is not just the thing that happens in this room where we practice together in this time when we're all in the same place was really cool. Um, what I, I think that a lot of it, a lot of it probably came from the time they spent together. Like there are definitely references, lyrical references to that apartment and their experience of living together with those people. Right. Cause it's Dave, Ari and some other roommates whole bunch of like everyone we hung out with in New Brunswick. Basically. Right. Um, who wrote what she said, the music Pete knives, bats, new tats. Me ostrich, ostrich sized Dave. We did it. You remembered everything. Yeah, um, yeah. thank you. Thank you for, uh, for suffering <laughs> through that process. No, no, I, I, I um, but you know, I, I also it's important to remember that that we you know we bring this stuff to practice, and then there's a lot of collaboration. I mean, the arrangements are are everybody, right? And of I'll course. be the first. I'll be the first to tell you that if it weren't for those guys, like that group of people, like every song I write would sound the exact would sound exactly the same. Huh. Um. Were there any last minute songs written in the studio 
or just before you went into the studio? No, but um, there's a couple things worth commenting on there. I think um, you can tell me if it's interesting or tedious. Um, this happened each. This I remember something like this happened each time we did a record. Um, the end of Anchor was like the vocals were not done. Like what we didn't already didn't know what we were doing there in that end part. Um, the part where Ari and Dave go back and forth, uh, off of one another. And I remember it feeling like we were stuck and I went to go get food and I came back and they had just recorded that, like come up with that and recorded that. Um, that kind of call and response thing where Dave sort of screams singing in response to Ari, like line for line back and forth. And I just like walked through the door and they were playing it. I literally went out to get burritos and they had like come up with it and recorded it. And I just walked into the control and it was like, Holy fuck. Like that's a hundred times better than anything I imagined this song would be. And it's just like such a thrill. Yeah, and it's a lot of thinking on your feet because you're only doing this. You're doing this entire thing in two days, including vocals, right? Yeah. So it's like totally better come clock. up with something. Yeah. yeah, and trying to get like salvageable, salvageable performances out of me, which is no mean feat. Like Pete's a really technical player, but for me, like I, I tend to write at the outskirts, I guess, of what I'm able to do physically. And so there were certain things like the 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 palm muted down picking in Rodeo Clown. Uh, I couldn't do that physically when we wrote the song. Like I, in my head, I was like, "All right, so for this chorus, it's going to be this thing where like Pete like down like palm mute down picks the these chords, and I'll do something like melodic that isn't hard." <laughs> um, and they were all like, "No, it's got to be like that's where it bears down and gets like." nasty and it's got to be both of you um and ari referenced that what's the misfits record where they um where they got like hardcore earth ad is it is it yeah he, he's like i wanted to sound like that like nasty like nasty downpicked like intensity and i was like i but i can't do that and they're like no you have to do that and then you know i had to learn to i couldn't do it fast enough um, and I was sweating in the studio. Like, am I going to be able to deliver this? Um, and I got better at that over the next couple of years because we used that a lot. But like at the time I was like, I don't know if I'm going to nail this. Like Pete might just have to play it for me. Um, right. And, and this is all, all that in two days. And this is all on a purple strat, right? Yeah, that was the purple strat. And uh, I wasn't even playing through my amp. They wouldn't let me use my amp on that record. Why are you? You're... Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to disclose what amp I had, but let's suffice it to say it was a solid state amplifier. Ben probably knows. Oh, yeah, it was a crate. Am <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course you're right. Um. I was just going to hope to get out of this conversation without, uh, without mentioning. <laughs> for all, uh, for all yeah. the non, 
for all the non-technical heads, like that's the joke of '90s hardcore. It's like, eh, it's all done through a crate amp, which is like the least expensive amp you could possibly buy with like yeah. really bad sounding distortion. But that record sounds incredible. Mm-hmm. So there's something to be said for using bad equipment, bad equipment correctly, oh. I suppose. But I did not use the crate on that record. Oh, you did saying? Oh, because you right, oh. your amp was a crate, so you used a Marshall yeah. or some. They shit. would not let. They would not let me use bring that amp into the studio. <laughs> they wouldn't even let me come in. You're like, well, I'm worried about it getting uh, the car getting broken into and stolen. They're like, don't worry about that either, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I played. I used the JCM 800 that they had in the studio. Um, oh, that's beautiful. Um, tell me about um, when you're putting together the album. Is it just like these are the 12 songs we wrote, so this is what's going on the album, or was there kind of a um, an intention on? crafting the album as a as a one listening experience in other words and and to add to that question do you think that you sort of uh matched or or stacked more fast hardcore sounding songs in in the mix to balance out the slower jams like i'm not calling you that was certainly not conscious that was just the songs we wrote i mean we we were like a fast band at least that's how we saw ourselves. Um, and uh, no, I think I mean, did so. You, is the question like, did anything get left on the cutting room cutting room yes. floor there? Yes. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there was unused stuff for that record. I think the the bigger thing was um, what she said, and I'm not calling you. Were like figuring out how to not look at those as unfinished parts of songs, but like to see them as like songs, I think was part of, that was like sort of like an editorial decision. Right. But I think at first we were like, these are like parts of songs that don't go anywhere. And then we're sort of like, wait, like who, you know, we just took like a different kind of ownership of them as songs that didn't, you know, who said who said there has to be a verse and a chorus um right and that was more part of the process of like making a record that felt like a coherent piece like body of work or whatever rather than like these are all the songs we had hopefully that's cool yeah i think the more the decision to use the decision to use and to highlight those songs i think was like a big part of thinking about how we wanted the album as a whole to be. Dan, the cover art is very similar to the House Martin's record, London Zero Hole 4. Was that yeah. intentional? And yes. if so, whose idea? Ari. Right on. Possibly I him too, but I think, I think essentially our, Ari took the biggest ownership of the visual part of the band. Um and it makes sense. I remember it being his idea. It makes sense to me just knowing everybody so well that it would have been him. And then, uh, you know, working with, um, and he was also, we were also going for, as you can, as we did on this, on the next record too, this kind of, uh, something that visually referenced, uh, like the blue note catalog, which is like the sort of the preeminent jazz label. Um, and there was like a very specific art direction aesthetic to the the design of those records um, that John Yates, who's a graphic designer, punk dude from the West coast 
used to run Allied Records. He was sort of the the guy who helped us execute that. Actually, if you go on his Instagram, he now has done it. He's like made these homages to all these classic punk records that he's done in that style. Uh, it's really cool. Like I would, I would want to put half of that stuff on my wall if I had the the time. He did bad That's brands sick. recently. Yeah, he actually did. He did. Um, he did the design for one of the Bad Brains re-releases, I think. Mm-hmm. Dan, how did you feel when the final product was like in your hands? Um, like you see the record, you're holding it, you put it into. I don't know how you initially listen to music at the time. Do you put the disc into your car player, or you listen to, on the radio at home, or what? Kind of talk me through the experience of now you have this this thing in your hands. It's vinyl, baby. Yeah, I put it on the record. I mean, I had it. I, I had like the mixed and mastered version on a tape that I had like listened to in the car a million times before everything got pressed. But um, once I got the vinyl in my hands, that was the real thrill. Right. Um, do you remember the initial reaction to "Hello Bastards"? Um, was there any sort of backlash? Because it is like a it is a change in the sound. So did your older fans not like it in, as much or was it just universally loved like it is now? Um, yeah, we, it was definitely was not universally loved. And, uh, I don't know if there was backlash so much as like the, like hardcore in 1995 didn't really, especially East coast hardcore in 1995 still really didn't know what to make of us. And, and that's not meant to sound like, <laughs> They just didn't understand our genius. I mean, <laughs> not at all. I think that there wasn't really a framework for that, for like that kind of music in the Northeast. Um, and so I feel like, it didn't feel universally embraced. We were really proud of it and the people we cared about loved it. Uh, and the people that we res- whose opinion we respected loved it. I remember um, the summer before we had ac- we had actually done a U.S. tour with Snapcase and become friends with them. And I remember going to see them at at a at the when the record was done but not out. And they played this church in North Jersey. I've seen flyers for the show. I can't remember the town. Maybe Chatham. Um, I think they were playing with the donuts or something. Um, and I went to see them and I played the, I played it for them in their van and they were like, like, I think I don't play the whole thing, but I played, I put it in at the beginning and like Danielism came and went and then went into, um, to rodeo con. And they were just all looking at me with their mouths hanging open. And that was like the best compliment I got, I got in the early in the early moments of the record being done. You have some merch around that time that was based on like old tattoo flash, which seems like it was kind of ahead of the time for its, its thing. Uh, was that intentional? What was the idea behind that? Which, uh, which design are we talking about? Jump in, Ben. <laughs> this was actually a question from Anthony Papalardo, who helps out with the podcast, you know, from in my eyes. Up, um, Anthony? Oh Yeah. He's he rules. Um, but a lot of, so, he, so he wrote this question. I, I 
vaguely recall there being t-shirts or whatever that had tattoo flash art as well, but maybe that came a little later. I'm not sure. There was one shirt that was like the Knives Bats new tats design. And that was literally, I think the only, uh, artistic decision I ever made in the band, which is good because most of my ideas were bad. Um, (laughs) in terms of like visual, visual stuff, like I would have always gone for something that was way cornier or way more pedestrian than like what Ari came up with. Um, so I remember, (laughs) I remember the, the first design we ever did, he found these like woodcuts and he loved the image. And then, I was like, I don't know. The guy just looks, doesn't look, it was like a woodcut of a guy standing up and there's like waves or wind crashing down on him or something. And, uh, and I was like, I don't know. It looks kind of, the guy just doesn't look that cool. And he's like, you probably wish the guy had like a shaved head and like a hoodie on, but that's not what we're doing. And, (laughs) and, uh, and, and that sort of like how it always was. Right. So the the not knives bats new tats it it plays into the title of the song that you you're using flash art because it's yeah. about tat okay that makes yeah. sense. Tattoos. And the title comes the title comes from our friend Matt O'Brien uh who just that was like a thing he used to say like um thing he uh, he would frequently shout out, shout out for no apparent reason but it was cool and uh and so we used it as a song title um Song titles rarely really reference what the song's about. Right. Um, and then I was just like, what if this could be corny, but what if we did a shirt that was like Knives, Bats, New Tats, and it was like Tattoo Flash? And so, shockingly, Ari didn't think it was a bad idea. <laughs> and um, <laughs> my roommate at the time was, a, was um, a tattoo artist, still a good friend of mine. And I think he drew The Cat and the Flames. Right. And then Ari had Black Cat Records or whatever, yeah. the yeah, record label later. and story. Yeah. Um, after Hell, after Hello Bastards comes out, um, what kind of bands are you playing with? Does it shift from the kinds of bands you were playing with in the background era? That's a good question. I think we did play not, not so much in our, well, I think we, I think we did end up getting put on a bunch of shows with like fat records bands actually. Um, but not, not in our home turf, more like on the road. I remember this like series of Eastern Canada shows, which, and by the way, just for, yeah, no, I don't know where I was going with that, but this series of on tour. Well, first of all, I mean, yeah, we toured with Weston. Um, we're just like totally a pop punk band of like funny nerds from like the Lehigh Valley who I thought you know, we thought were awesome and were friends of ours. And then on that tour, this whole like Eastern Canadian leg, we were playing with uh, like good riddance and tilt and AFI for like a week in Eastern Canada. So that was definitely different than like playing with mouthpiece and resurrection every weekend. Right, but we and still play with we still play with those guys all the time too. Okay, yeah, and and that do you think you went over well with, you know, AFI's audience, for example, like people who didn't know you existed before going to see you play? I have no idea. 
Oh, I saw you open for good riddance in Santa Barbara and I think people were into it. Um, so after lifetime breaks up a few years later, a lot of bands start up who are clearly influenced by your last two records, hello bastards, Jersey's best dancers. Did that surprise you that like, there is a clear influence that you have on lots of bands that, you know, came after you. Were you shocked by that or was, were you, I don't know if I was shocked. I found it gratifying. Yeah. Um, and, and vindicating too. Cause I think like it was, it was frustrating doing what we we're doing in the, in the mid to late nineties because I definitely hear people like it felt pretty clear that we were embraced, you know, in like New New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Boston. But you know, we'd also have these experiences where we'd play like Chicago and it would be amazing. And then on the next tour we'd be heading to Chicago and we we're like, Oh, last time we played Chicago was amazing. This is gonna be great. And then it was not great. <laughs> and I remember feeling like I remember sometimes being frustrated, feeling like this is kind of cliche now, but like we're like too pop for the hardcore kids and too hardcore for the pop punk kids. Um, And that, you know, just being really frustrated that people's like idea of what the music they like is supposed to sound like being very like, like, tightly tethered to genre and expectation. And I feel like it take a, took a little more work to like enjoy what we were doing. If you were, you know, if your benchmark was like chain of strength or AF, it's not like, I'm not trying to say like, I didn't think people got it. Cause that's like, that's kind of like arrogant it was more just like frustrating that there wasn't a lane that in which we just made sense to people. Um, you created the lane. And so, yeah, I like to think so, but it's not, it's not always fun being the one like creating the lane. You like, you're hacking through, you're hacking through weeds and like throwing down gravel. Right. And, uh, but which, well, I, I found it, uh, it was like cool to see that there's, oh, this is like a, this is a thing. You can be a melodic hardcore band and be like fast and poppy and, and that's a thing, I guess. I'm right. not doing a great job of articulating that, but um felt good to, to like, to see more of that happening. Some people were doing a really good job of it. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask one specific one, and you can skip it if you want, because I'm going to single out a band. But that first Saves the Day LP, the Can't Slow Down, <clears throat> is like so, so Lifetime. Like, it seems like they have like a single influence, which is the last two Lifetime albums. And yeah, you may like have already touched on it. Does it, that sound like, is t- it, do you feel it as flattering or insulting? Yeah, I, or I, how do- I hear that as flattering. Okay. And yeah. do you agree with that? Do you have a better ear than me that you're like, oh, no, they're pulling from this? Or you're like, that's all Lifetime, come on. No, I, I feel like it's pretty clearly 
Yeah. Um, clearly directly, directly going for the, you know, the last, the last two lifetime records. So going into, going into the new, the new millennium, there are, but I, I, I should say that like when we started out, if I could have pulled off, if I could have pulled off totally sounding like, can I say, then we would have. <laughs> Right. right, so it's right. it's a good thing you you couldn't because then you sounded like yourselves, which I always think yeah. is like that's kind of that's how great music gets made anyway. It's like the Rolling Stones wanted to sound like you know black blues guys from the South, and they couldn't do it, and then they ended up sounding right. like themselves, which is very good to some people who yeah. like the Rolling Stones, which is a lot of people. Um, and, but, and in the early stuff, what we were going for is all over the map. Like I would write a part and I'd be thinking about like burn and Ari would do vocals that you know, to me sounded like, like Sam, I am or something like that. And like we, we worked and we stayed together because we weren't trying to force each other into like one another's expectations. We were just trying to see what would happen. Right. Dan, if you can only put one lifetime record in a time capsule, which one is it? Uh, I'm not going to answer that question. That's like asking me to pick which one of my kids I like better. I think that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I'm not, uh, that sounded snappy. I'm not like, uh, that's a fine question to ask. I just can't answer it. No, we like it. You can smack us around. It's cool. (laughs) Um, Um, I I guess my, my, my more snappy response would, do you really fucking expect me to answer that? (laughs) <laughs> well it's a hard question and that's why like because you do have like this dearth of material and it's all great in its own way and even on the podcast when we have like four people on we kind of argue about what our favorite stuff is and mm-hmm. and all you know we're all musicians too so when you write things they are like you know i guess your kids in a sense and yeah. you just have weird connections to them and I, I guess that would be the question is just what do you feel the most connected to? But you don't have to answer that either. That's cool. I feel I feel connected to the, to to Tinnitus, Hello Bastards, and Jersey's Best equally, but it, for different reasons and in different ways. Um, right. Tinnitus and and Hello Bastards, we were like this is we were like discovering ourselves, um, and uh, I think like the early records are like uh, like awkward the awkward part of puberty and then like tinnitus hello bastards and jersey's best are like you know like moving confidently from like adolescence into young adulthood and like all the good and the bad that comes with that like jersey's best has a lot of heartbreak attached to it because we you know we were breaking up as we finished it um Whereas like Hello Bastards was like wide open skies, you know. Right on. Um, so this is, we've reached the end. Do you have um, anything else you wanted to say about Hello Bastards? Final memories, final thoughts? I don't know. I'm I'm like I I'm it's a it's a really strong argument for not having a month in the studio to record a record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like it's it's a very I miss I miss the 
budgetless era of hardcore when you had to just keep the blemishes because you couldn't just keep re-recording that one measure until you got it perfect. Like, like punk records sounded better before they were perfect. No doubt. Totally. I totally agree. And I say that without reservation. You know, I've listened to this record many times on headphones and I, I don't hear anything that isn't perfect, but I, I understand the sentiment. Like if you time corrected the drums, it would sound off. Like they would not sound natural and it would not sound as good. And the cool thing is like the drums are wild. Like, like not enough is said about the fact that Scott Golly is like a wild drummer, you know, like he, when he first came to us, he couldn't quite play as fast as we needed him to play. But once he like got there, man, he was like so great to play with. He's like a marching band dude. Like the, listen to his drum fills. They're like really weird and really cool. Um, he's like into that like drumline shit and that's where he comes from musically. I mean, he had been in punk bands before obviously too, but like the drums, the drum fills on that record are wild. Yeah. It's a hardcore record. That's kind of what keeps it from, uh, you know, tilting over fully into pop punk territory. It's, it's hardcore drumming to me. Yeah. That's what I hear. All right, Dan. Thanks. What was that? No, we forget. It's not worth saying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, see, Ben cuts you off and we lose the gold. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The other thing I would, the other thing I would say, I mean, this isn't a great closing thing, but, but, um, I don't know if I've ever talked about this really in, in an interview is that like in that process of moving from like who we were as like a new age band into like, kind of finding our lane, like as we were, uh, I guess in the early stages of, of moving toward what would have become tinnitus, like, um, Ari had this real shift in terms of what, where he saw us going. And he's like, I don't want to play fast music anymore. It was really funny. Like remembering that and then listening to like, you know, I say I'll debut Salil or, or star 69. It's so fucking fast. But he was like, I want to move away from like fast music. And I, you know, like we were sort of clashing and I was like, well, I'm like, I don't want to, I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't know how to do that, but I also don't want to like stop being a band. Um, and we wrote this whole like bunch of mid tempo songs that we ended up scrapping that we played live. Um, and you know, it turns out after the fact, I realized that he was going for something really different than what I imagined he was going for. Like my only frame of reference for like our music, but mid tempo was like Sam, I am like, so, okay. So I got to, Oh, Sam, I am's good. Like I could, I, we could write stuff like that. Like I could, I can get moving that direction, you know, like, um, and then, but he was thinking like, it turns out after the fact that he, he like was like pointing out stuff to me that he was being influenced by then he was talking about like Pegboy and stuff like that. 
like anthemic, like four chord, like mid tempo melodic punk, kind of anthemic melodic punk. And uh and I was like, he's thinking Pegboy and I'm thinking Sam I am and like that's uh, kind of it's sort of representative of how bad we were at communicating too. Mm-hmm. Um but then then um Dave joined the band and Dave Pilatus joined the band on bass and we ended up I don't really exa- remember exactly how that happened, but we had like three or four songs that we were playing live that we just scrapped and dove into writing the tinnitus material. Um, I guess we found our way back to a common ground. And, and we're all, we're all, all more fortunate for that having happened. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I mean, that that's Ben's far out theory is that the Dave is a catalyst for the, the sound change. He certainly has a lot to do with it. And then Scott, which is like you right. know, the, the amount of pressure you can't under, you can't overstate the amount of pressure Scott was under because wagon shoots had this rep like as like the fiercest drummer in our scene. And like a lot of, there were a lot of doubters like, Oh, no way. No way are they going to find somebody that can fill his shoes. Um, and, I, you know, we probably weren't sure either. Um, I remember uh, we played one of our earlier shows with Scott. Uh, we played ABC No Rio. And uh, I remember Norm Arenas and a couple other guys we knew were standing like behind the drum set before we started. And I hear one of them, I don't know who said this, but I hear one of them. Uh, right before we start remarking obviously in reference to scott like i don't know this guy better be good (laughs) and like that you know scott definitely heard that in his left ear like minutes before we started um but but, so so there's a lot into it yeah we got to thank you for knocking the guy from mouthpiece we're good. <laughs> cool. Um, <laughs> Dan, you've been so generous with your time. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for, um, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I love talking about music and any chance to talk to Ben, not via text message is cool too. <laughs> <laughs> you can call me anytime, whatever. It's all good. What's up everyone. This week on the pod, we are talking hello bastards, continuing to talk hello bastards. Helping out, you know him, you love him. He is episode one. He is the legend, Joe Rivas. What's up, Joe? The legend, Joe Rivas, with a lifetime tattoo. Yeah, dude, holding it down for the lifetime. Hey, uh, and also helping out, it is Ben Merlis, aka Ben Edge, aka Bedge. What's up, Ben? Forty-three years and still no tats. Tat-free youth, faux life. Oh <laughs> yeah, me too, dude. Joe. Joe, what um, kind of what does the tattoo look like? Is it the one that says "I like money" and it's a guy holding money bags? <laughs> no, it's the it's the banner. Okay, money is. Let's cool. keep it hella bastard specific, fools. Already, you're off topic. Jesus. <laughs> um. <laughs> so we interviewed uh, Dan Neiman, and we tried to focus in on this record because we think it's a spectacular record, and this is a thing we're trying to do sometimes is like do an album focus. So. Uh, Joe, first off, you listen to the interview. Any takeaways from it? Uh, yeah, I thought you guys did a great job. Uh, 
Dan asked, answered a bunch of questions. Uh, uh, very uh, politically correct, shall we say? Because uh, I know some of those actual answers. Um, uh, yeah, it was great. It was good to hear Dan's voice too. I haven't seen him or talked to him in a long time. So I was just a little disappointed that he wouldn't give us which album he would send uh, on the spaceship. You know. In the time capsule, because like I, I don't know, I know I know you can't choose. It's very hard as a musician, but hey, dude, if you got to choose, you know, what I mean, like we could all narrow down our one piece. I think, right, right. Mine is just a uh, CDR copy of the Nardway ten times. <laughs> also, he was but, very uh, dip- hey, diplomatic when he talked about the life, the uh, the mouthpiece drummer. He wasn't going to throw shade at Jason Jammer. I don't think he heard me. I don't think he heard me. But but you know what he was very diplomatic about was he and dude a credit to this guy's brain. Like that he remembered like all like the songwriting stuff. You know, like yeah. that was awesome, like going through and getting like down to the nitty-gritty on that stuff, and he remembered everything. It was amazing. You know. So. Well he does a hold a doctorate, right? Or at least a clinical psychology, right? Yeah, he's a doctor. I mean, he's a doctor of clinical psychology. You got it. That's right. Dr. Yeah, Dan Yeaman. Yeah. Nailed it. Um, so, uh, Joe, what is your personal connection with this album? Well, uh, let's see. So when I started working for Good Riddance, um, the first – well, not the first show. That's not true. The first show that I did a long tour with Good Riddance with was in Santa Barbara on Valentine's Day with Lifetime. And Lifetime was on, I don't know, 17 shows with us after that, something like that. So uh, I fell in love with them that way, being stuck in a van with them or next to them or whatever for, you know, three weeks. So that, that's they my pl- connection to that record. They were in the process of trying to get uh, Jersey's Best, you know, you know um, what am I trying to say? They were They were talking to record labels. Uh, trying to trying to push uh, Jersey's best, but no one was having it. So they were playing that some of that stuff. Right, it had been recorded, but it hadn't been picked up by a label yet. Right, I think just the seven inch was out. The uh, Boys No Good seven inch was out. Right. So, and we were all there at that Santa Barbara show, right? At uh, what do you call it, the Underground or, yeah. or Emerald City, uh, Emerald City, or whatever name it was at that time? Yeah, yeah, that was great. That was a great show. Yeah. You know, Ben, you were there too. You mentioned it to him. Yeah, and they also played the pickle patch either the night before, or the night after. I think the night, night before. before. Yeah. yeah, and this is 1997. We're talking about seven. Yeah, so, yep, yep. Yeah, and I had seen them. Record. I had actually first seen them the summer before that at the Roxy opening for U- L.A. Youth Brigade. L.A. Youth Brigade, of course, L.A. Not D.C. Youth Brigade. Um, but and they were very good at that as well. Ben, what is your personal connection with this album? Um, I got it probably at the very beginning of 96. And I just thought, like, this is the way, like, hardcore was in a weird place in the mid-90s. It was kind of, if it wasn't overtly metallic, it was very dark sounding and very kind of epic sounding and sort of not particularly fun and this song i mean this album is 
very upbeat, very melodic, very fun and fast. And it, it's just like, duh, like this is the way music should sound. I mean, not a hundred percent of the time, but like, it's incredible that there's, there was ever a period of time where it was rare for a hardcore record to be fun or fast. Like, isn't that just fucking absurd? Like in retrospect, like that there was ever an era like that. Joe, do you get fun off this at all though? I don't get fun off this album. Well, I mean, there's a whole lot of heartbreak. I mean, Danielism is definitely fun from the top. I think. It just sounds um, like, can you guys hear the ice cream man? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, I don't know. It just sounds very emotional and a lot of the parts are really sad, right? Yeah, but there's, I mean, there's joy in that too. In that sadness, if, if that's possible, obviously not like, you know, like, uh, um, no crap. I can't think right now. Hold on a second. Uh, I'm not calling you or like, like stuff like that. You know, that's definitely sad, but, you know, the gym is neutral territory definitely has a fun feeling to it. Although it's not exactly a fun song if you really read the lyrics, but yeah. Why is this fun, Ben? Just because the songs are short and lots of little tempo changes. Yeah. Anchor, uh, gym is neutral territory. Irony is for suckers, you know, like keep, take your hands at Keep your hands out of my pockets. You fucking thief. Like it's, there's something light and playful about, a lot of the lyrics and the music is up tempo and it has mosh parts without being like thuggy, you know, it's like, and the mosh parts are really creative. I hadn't thought about it until recently. It's like, you know, tempo or not tempo wise, but, but rhythmically there's stuff that you don't really hear on other records when they go to the slow part. Um, you know, like ticket, ticket. Well, I'm not going to do the onomatopoeia, but there, there are certain things where no. it's like, oh, wow. When you're talking about it's like they did a beat down part, and they go dun 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 dun, and then it changes. It's like dan zikadan zikadan, you know. So it's like it's pretty neat. Um, but I thought it was cool hearing Dan break down who wrote which songs because if you look at who, now that we have the people who wrote each song in front of us. Like, I wouldn't be able to... T- okay, Pete, for example, the other guitarist, wrote two songs on this record, Bobby Truck Tricks and What She Said. There's no way I'd be able to tell you, oh, yeah, the same guy wrote both those songs. Like, I can't... It must have been so much of a group effort because you don't have that individual stamp on the songs. I can't... There's no style I can point to and be like, oh, that's such a Pete song, at least within the context of this one album. You know what I mean? No, it really seems like, you know, a guy came in with the bare bones idea and it got worked out in the room. Like these are definitely like songs that got worked in the room. You can tell. I mean, when he was going into, you know, he said he went out for burritos and the dudes like worked on a transition. I mean, that tells you everything, right? Yeah. Like we need a transition for the song. Like that just goes to show like the amount of care they put in. Like it's hardcore, dude. Like whatever. If you got an album with 10 songs, like in your, you're worried about a single transition. Like that's, that's pretty dialed in, you know? And, and that's, it's those little things that make albums special, right? Cause it seems so seamless when you listen to it, but maybe if that was taken out, it would be a little more jarring or it wouldn't flow as well. 
Yeah, they and it's yeah, yeah. they really cared about making this record good because like he said he remixed they remixed it because he wasn't happy with the volume of the snare drum versus the volume of the hi-hat. Like so many other bands would just be, would have been like good enough for hardcore and like he was like no, I don't want it to sound like a bad 80s hardcore record. I want it to sound like a good 80s hardcore record. Um and then the other the other huge um bombshell maybe I'm being overly dramatic is where Ari tells Dan I guess between the first and second album at some point that I don't want to play fast anymore. I don't want our band to be fast. And so Dan was all, Oh, you want to be like Sam? I am. And then eventually he realizes, no, Ari wanted to be like peg boy, but then they get Scott who plays super fast and keeps it hardcore. And it's like, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be melodic and emotional and still play fast, hardcore with mosh parts. Like, you can do all of those things all at the same time, and none of those things contradict each other. And it's like, thank God they reached that conclusion. They still would have been good if you if you think of all these songs played at like mid tempo punk pace. They're still great songs. It still would have been a great album. But it's I'm very happy that they ended up you know kind of having it be like the second coming of Start Today or whatever. Pick your favorite melodic '80s hardcore record. Well, and it swung so hard the other way too. Because it's like really fast, you know, it's like faster than the previous stuff, you know, and, and they lean so much into the speed here. Like, I don't know, maybe it was Ari that wanted to be slow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like maybe, maybe it just like, he didn't want to settle into like the same groove that the fast beats had before. Like he thought that that was getting a little stale, but like this dude just like kicked so much energy into the fast parts that they're just like roll with it, you know? It just seems weird because they were slow and picked up speed, you know, like all the background stuff is all, well, maybe not all of it, but a lot of it is. It's more so like, yeah. Right. The the big thing, well, well, background, if you listen to it, the slow parts take up more real estate. The slow parts are a larger percentage of each song, but they, those, a lot of those songs have, fast parts going into breakdowns as well. And that's the, the other thing is ask, we asked the influences that the band had when they were making the early material versus hello bastards. And he said, the influences right. were the same. They just got better at expressing, you know, their combination of influences after being a band for five years, which is interesting. Well, he to also me. said like, a, a, a change in members too. So yeah, yes, 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 of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Ben, you should pitch your theory to Joe, right? Of getting the guy, the bass player. Like, you think that maybe <clears throat> he was like the magic sauce in the room, even though, like, we don't have his name, like, next to one of these songs. I mean, he did, Dave Pilatus, oh, yeah. he, he did, he co wrote Anchor. He wrote, I'm Not Calling You. Uh, and he wrote, oh, you're right. Jim, He's all over the place. Jim is Neutral Territory, co wrote Irony is for Suckers, and wrote Ostrich Sized. Yeah, he did write a lot of stuff. Um, Dan wrote, it's kind of, it's we don't have to react sort, it. We don't have to react. Yeah, yeah, but it's sort of split evenly, but 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 Dan, Dan a little bit more than the other two than uh, Dave and Pete uh, with songwriting. But yeah, that's and that wasn't really my theory. I inter- actually interviewed them like 15 years ago and they told me that. <laughs> so I was just I knew what the answer was, but we had to ask. 
Joe, do you have a favorite song on the record? Oh man. Uh, I'm going to have to go with rodeo clown as my favorite aside of it's not funny anymore, but that is a, you know, who's could do song. So yeah. Rodeo clown is so ill. Cause it's like almost the same as Danerism, but it's adding a, a little lead. Right. Like that guitar lead is so good, dude. It's beautiful. I, I'm ostrich sized, whatever the fuck <laughs> all day. Best song on the record. You it's know. a damn good song. Yeah. Ben, you got a favorite? Actually don't. I just I love the way the record starts. So usually I just start at the beginning and I listen to the whole thing or I listen to you know, at least the first two, three, four songs and then whatever. I yeah, I don't have a favorite song. This is my favorite album <laughs> of the nineties. I've said it before on this podcast. You like it more than Jersey's best? Yes. Joe, how about you? Uh, no. Jersey's best uh, tops it for me. But, I mean, they're so – I mean, it's sort of like a side A, side B. This, this could be a versus thing right here, this this debate. Yeah. I, I Jersey's think so best too. would probably win but because more people are in love with it than, than with Hello Bastards. But Hello Bastards is – it's a fantastic record. Irony is for suckers is like so good. Like every everything every I'm just looking over the names, knives, bats, and new tats. Everything rules. Um, there's one question I forgot to ask Dan that I texted him about, and he actually responded, and he had a funny story about it. So I can read what he said. It'll only take a couple minutes. So I wanted to know how Lifetime ended up on Jade Tree because this is the first record that they did on Jade Tree. And Dan said, "Um, there's a funny, maybe not, story about the first time we met with Jade Tree. They reached out after Tinnitus and expressed their interest. They had put out the Four Walls Falling LP and the Swizz discography and the Universal Order of Armageddon 7-inch, which meant they were pretty untouchable in our eyes. We were just excited that they... Um, approached us. So their pedigree as purveyors of New Jersey hardcore was pretty solid. Tim had put out the release seven inch. That was um, his label before J tree was action packed. And Ari was very close with release. Uh, Darren had put out the turning point EP Darren from Jade trees. Previous label was high impact. And that Turning Point EP was a serious benchmark for local punk. I had mail-ordered the Four Walls Falling 7-inch from Action Pact in 1989. Never got it. Eight months later, I received the Even Score 7-inch, which has the distinction of containing the song Bodies Falling and having on its lyric sheet the following in print, Bodies Falling times four. Um, Anyway, five years later, Tim gets the train or takes the train to New Brunswick to meet with us. I've never met him before. He gets off the train and all I said was, hey, where's my four walls seven inch? End of story. That was pretty good. <laughs> Much appreciated. <laughs> I wonder why they didn't stay with Jade Tree didn't like fold. Why didn't they just do Jersey's Best on Jade Tree? They did. They did. Well, they ended Jade up Tree folded that. right then. No, no, no. It's on Jade Tree. It, they did do Jersey's Best. Oh, on Jade Tree. On Jade. But they were no, shopping. But they were shopping it. They were shopping it to get on something else because there wasn't a lot of money behind J Tree for tour support and stuff. Mm. That was my that was my understanding. Got gotcha. you. 
Gotcha. Ben, you have anything else on this? You you had a couple of reviews? Well, I went I went down, I did my, you know, song breakdown thing that we like to do. Um, so I have little things on each song. Oh, let's do it, dude. Let's have Ben do it yourself, dude. Go down these songs. <laughs> All right. So Danierism is the first song. I wrote verse verse pre-chorus breakdown. There is no chorus. No parts repeat, although the breakdown is the same chords as the verse played at halftime. Name a better song that has no repeating parts. Also, what more could you want from a hardcore song? Um, and I love the part where he says, laughter is guilt, silence incriminates us. Whoa! What do you have on this? Or am I just doing it all myself? I only did the first five. I just said simple, catchy, and I give it a nine. <laughs> okay rodeo clown it doesn't matter it doesn't really matter if the main guitar riff was inspired by the replacements or screeching weasel because it's better than both of those bands uh this song this song i know and that's i uh, believe me i love those bands so that's saying a lot this song quote unquote hits me in the feels as zach would say and reminds me of specific girls especially in the lyrics did you know that i kept it for a year all this time i figured you'd be here Go. The song gets happier towards the end. It's hopeful. <laughs> Ben's hoping that Bertha's going to get back with him. <laughs> um, I just said simple, catchy, with a guitar hook, and I give it a 10. Uh, Anchor, the fact that Ari only printed some of the lyrics on the lyric sheet bugs me. And the yeah. uh, si- sidebar, I, I interviewed him once. I, I asked him to fill in the lyrics for me, and he did. He just told me every lyric that wasn't printed, and I, and I forgot to fucking hit the button that actually recorded. <laughs> so it was lost, <laughs> lost forever. Um, uh, more great songwriting, fast to slow, to slow and, and quiet. And then fast, loud explosion. I don't think I knew Dave was singing with him at the end until I saw them live. This might actually be the most Screeching Weasel sounding song of theirs. Compare it to the Screeching Weasel song Inside Out, which isn't fast, but has a similar guitar thing going on. Uh, The interesting thing about the song is like they have a long, like drag out, like arena part at the end of it. And I wonder if this is like the one time they're kind of influenced by Green Day. You know, because like there's so much of that on Dookie, and here it is. Oh. Like, it's it's a big part like that. You know, yeah. it's actually like two different little parts that are like the arena parts before it goes fast and ends at the end. So, uh, point off for that, it gets an eight or Danderism <laughs> minus one. Um, I'm not calling you proof that you can be a hardcore band and write a slow song that is zero point zero percent metal. I wonder what the godfather of the style is, maybe Diane by Husker Du. Ari seems flaky. He's not calling someone, and there is a song on the first seven inch where he pretends like he isn't home when someone tries to visit him. I know the type too well. I love this kind of song. Um, There's a great song from like the same era that Lagwagon does on their third LP. It's like the second track on the third LP. And it's it's kind of similar in the, the tempo and it being like, you know, palm muted, slow, with like the singing carrying it. Um, yeah, this is cool. I wish there was more lyrics. It gets a little repetitive, 
Um, yeah, and this is where I fall off on my ratings. So, because I, I really like this album. I don't want to pick apart some things that I don't like. You know, like I never really thought about how much it annoys me that he doesn't have more lyrics on the song until I started listening to it to do this like song by song thing. And then I was like, you know what, dude? I just want to love this album and I don't want to get bogged down with any bullshit negativity. Like it's okay when we're, I don't know, doing older albums or whatever, but I guess this is old too, right? You know, this <laughs> is 25 years old at this point. You know? We Whatever just talked to him and he was so nice. You know, I, I don't want to be like, man, like, that one part, you know, where if it was Blitz, it's like, whatever, dude. <laughs> um, Bob, Bobby Truck Tricks. More feels. I'm getting Springsteen vibes. Uh, can it be my third winter here stuck in a small town is one of the lyrics. Maybe more Mellencamp vibes. Either way, I'd rather listen to this than those guys. And it's got that breakdown at the end. There have been many times where I started the album on this track. I, I, which is true. I've had, there's every once in a while you got to start at track five. See that in part is definitely not fun. This is like him, like being totally emotional, you know? And I totally disagree also. Cause Melon camp kicks ass, dude. Oh. Seen, no, is, is he seen nothing yet? No, he's a, uh, her so good. Come yeah. on, baby. Make it her so good. Sometimes love don't feel Dude, that video is like the best video ever. It's like just a bunch of like truck drivers like walking down the street, like kind of dancing and clapping their hands like to that song. It's so fucking ill, dude. It's like if they just like were a little more mean muggy, it would look like a hardcore video. Well, again, you know what I'm talking when about, I'm, Joe? You've seen it, right? I, I agree 100%. That's why I'm laughing because it's, <laughs> it's so ill, huh? It's like it makes very, like very few times does like a, a video make a song better. <laughs> Especially like back it up, like because sometimes like a video will be sick, but it like changes like the way you think about the song. But that yeah, one's just yeah, like, yeah. damn, th- this backs up this song. You know, it just went from a fucking ten to an eleven. Yeah, Mellencamp's on, good. Mellencamp's good. Springsteen's good. Again, like comparing them to people who are good, and then being like, and they're even better. Like, I'm not like throwing them under the bus. I am lifting them okay uh, the gym is neutral territory snotty who else was doing snotty in east coast hardcore circa 95 everyone else is singing about liberating mink farms and the apocalypse but these guys are bringing the <laughs> pop punk and shit talking kids who skipped punk and went straight from metallica to hardcore are bummed on this song <laughs> i love it all right go on next one uh, i like you okay more short and fast this got me wondering, did any pop punk bands have breakdowns before this record came out? Zach, do you know the answer to that? I don't know, but this is like Bertha's song that reminds her of you. <laughs> uh, it's not funny anymore. Great song, great cover. Bob Mould does strange stuff on the guitar that I've yet to figure out. Either Pete or Dan or both of them have managed to figure it out. Circa 95, most hardcore bands were probably covering No Spiritual Surrender or other five to seven year old rev shit. Here comes Lifetime writing for 12 year old Metal Circus. Um, irony is for suckers. Everything well, that makes let's this just out- say, Because Joe was saying that, like, that would be one of his favorite songs on the record. Uh, Joe, they do a magical job on it, right? It's brilliant. Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant song. And it fits uh, in it, so well. Yeah. 
you know, it's got structured two different structured fast parts and then and then the breakdown thing and whatever you know however you want to call that i'll call it a breakdown maybe not a beatdown breakdown but a breakdown <laughs> the same yeah um, tempo change yeah it's it, it's it's glorious it's a great song it's so strange because it sounds different than everything on the record but somehow like fits in so perfectly yeah just a brilliant move all right ben go on it's not funny anymore. Great song. I'm sorry. We already did that. I- Ironies for suckers. Everything that makes it, this album great contained in one song. Springsteen slash Mellencamp slash Jawbreaker style emotional lyrics, melodic guitars, fast verses and choruses, and that great vocal break. Happy sounding breakdown with humor. Dig it. Uh, what she said. This makes me think of The Godfather by Dag Nasty, especially the vocal pattern. It's all your fault. It's all my fault versus what was on her mind, what was on my mind. Listening back to back, and they're even more similar than I thought. The Lifetime song kind of ends abruptly, though, and goes into that sample from an old movie. And I'm sorry, I we should have asked him what, what that's from. Um, feels kind of incomplete, but as a part of the entire album, it works. Yeah, I'm just glad it's an original and not a cover of a notorious white nationalist Morrissey's song of the same name. Uh, Knives Bats New Tats. Uh, Next time a star shoots across the sky, I'm going to grab it and smash it under my feet. Who the fuck wants to be happy? That part rules, but for some reason, no other band after this can get away with a lyric like that. Great song, too. (laughs) And Ben thinks it's fun. <laughs> fun line, dog. Uh, I didn't say that part was fun. No, I'm just saying the album. Oh, oh yeah, that's a great line, but, though. A great line. But yeah, it, yeah, it's like a great line for '95. But you know, you talk about the marshmallow falling off the stick. You do that same thing in '97, '98, 2000, whatever. The marshmallow has fallen off the stick. Your fucking newfound glory or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's different when it comes from Lifetime that is still like, you can't accuse them of not being like punk. You know what I mean? Like, they're a punk band, like, getting emotional. Not like an emotional band that pretends they're a punk band. Totally. Um, Ostrich-sized. This is the big anthem. Always smart to put a song like this at the end of an album. Doing it for ourselves. When he says... Uh, see, see it from the east side too. It almost sounds like he's saying see it from the east side motel. Shout out Nate Dog, R.I.P. Shout out Warren G. <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite song on the album. Like, this is a 10 out of 10 for sure. And I absolutely adore this song. Joe, final takes on this album? It's glorious. I love the artwork. Um, I was always bummed too about the anchor not having the full lyrics, and you know some of the lyrics are super Ill- illegible, so uh, you can't even read some of them anyway. On the other ones, uh, I I got it on colored vinyl, and uh, yeah, it's great. Hell yeah, Ben! Final thoughts. Um, it. I've said this before as well in the podcast. It it made it was like hardcore was in black and white. And when I heard this album, it was like you know that scene in um, Wizard of Oz where Dorothy walks through the door, and all of a sudden everything is in Technicolor. Like that's kind of the the 
the audio equivalent of of what happened, I think, in my opinion, with with this album specifically. Everything turned green like the cover of this record. No, everything was in color. It's really hard to explain that to people that everything seemed dark, like even the straightforward stuff, right? Like think about like Ignite, think about Mouthpiece. You know, these bands still sound dark, even though they're like categorized as like straightforward hardcore. Outspoken. Yeah. Yeah, totally. outspoken. But yeah, hell yeah. So this is an awesome album. Everyone check it out. If you guys like this episode where we dial into an album, let me know. We'll do it again. This was our uh, our first time trying to take an attempt at it. So who knows if we knocked it out of the park or whiffed. You got to let us know. Let us know in the comments on Instagram. Uh, ben, where can the people find you? Instagram at Cold Chillin' Book. Joe, where can the adoring episode one fans find you? Uh, uh, Burning Joe um, on Instagram. That, that would work. Hell yeah. Or on, on the Facebook. Yeah, dude. Get at him. You know, what's up? All right, everyone. You can get at me. I'm Zach Retaliate on Instagram. I am 185 miles south on Instagram, 185 miles south at gmail.com. And you know, Retaliate is the best on Instagram. Get at us. We'll talk to you again next Monday. Thank you for the support. Mm-hmm.